Good morning, everybody. We have uh, a lot of ground to cover today, a lot. So we're, uh, just be prepared. Uh, but before, before we jump back into our series in Matthew, I wanted to give you an update, a good update. As many of you know, you're here in the month of December. We talked about our kind of year in giving goals. Every December, we rely on extended generosity to sort of meet kind of year in financial and budgetary goals. And I'm happy to announce uh, we, we met our goals. And so uh, that's very, very good news. Yeah. Um, this church has continued to be generous and uh, it's, it really is it's a, it is a blessing to serve alongside of you all. There's something uh, special here, and it really is a blessing and a joy and a privilege to serve alongside all of you all. So thank you for your generosity, and sort of onward and upward into 2023. Now, uh, back to our series in Matthew. Matthew uh, is a biography of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and we have been here for quite some time. We took a break for the month of December, but for some of you, your entire time at South Valley Community Church has been going through the book of Matthew. Um, it's, it's been a very long time, and so as we jump back in, I kind of want to briefly trace where we've been. We've broken this book up into several sections, and a long time ago, like in the before times, the forgotten times, we started part one, uh, a long time ago, and we entitled it A Broken Line. And the reason for that was, at the turn of the first century, it appears as if the line of King David is broken. Um, there ought to be in Israel a rightful heir and son of David who's ruling and reigning is in Israel, and he should be ruling and reigning in a righteous way. However, that's not the case. The empire's in control, Caesar's in control, and they've installed a puppet king, Herod, in the land. Then, all of a sudden, in part two, we're introduced to Jesus, who is a young man who's going about northern Galilee proclaiming the kingdom of God. And kingdoms imply kings. And so there's this sort of anticipation, like, is this, is this the restoration of our people? Will we see deliverance? And then in part three, we see that rather than um, start some type of, of revolution that the people were expecting. Jesus, for the most part, stays in northern Galilee teaching. And he teaches a lot in parables, which leaves some people even more confused than they were. And if you want to go and do anything of significance in this time period, you don't stay in northern Galilee doing it. You have to go to the capital city. You have to go to the holy city. You have to go to Jerusalem, the capital. That's where it goes down. But Jesus is sort of just staying Again, in northern Galilee, teaching in parables and sometimes bringing clarity and sometimes bringing confusion to some people. But then in part four, everything turned. Um, Peter, one of the first followers of Jesus, confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And immediately Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you but my father in heaven. Now it's time to build my church. It's time to build the church and it's time now to go to Jerusalem. And that brings us into to part five, where Jesus is about to enter the capital. He's about to enter into Jerusalem, the holy city, the place where the Father's house is, the temple. And so what I want to do is just read to you the entirety of the section today. It's often called the triumphal entry. And after we read it, go back and ask a lot of questions and hopefully dig in and find some answers. So here is Matthew 21, Jesus finally about to enter Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. 
Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that were before him and that followed him were saying and shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now this section ends with this question. The whole city is stirred up and then the question, who is this? Who is this? Now, Matthew is doing two things. One, he's recording a historical event. The crowds that day asked, who is this? But also, in the function of his biography in this book, he's sort of asking the question to you. Who is this? Who is this Jesus? We know he's a prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. He's done miracles. He's done some things that clearly mark him out as distinct. But beyond that, is there something more to this man? Who is he? Now, in order to get to the root of this, you have to ask questions. Questions like when questions, where questions, what question, why questions, how questions. And when you ask these questions and follow the path that they lead you on, then you can finally get to the kind of who is this and hopefully make a a sound answer. So what I'd like to do is ask some of these questions. We'll begin with a when question. When are we? In one sense, we're in the first century world, but the more, important question, the more important issue is that it's Passover time. Passover is the great holiday in the Jewish calendar where you remember the great deliverance of the Jewish people from the tyrant Pharaoh. And if you're familiar with the story, there's 10 plagues and there's punishment and plagues upon Pharaoh and, and the parting of the sea and God delivered his people. It's God's demonstrating his power and might and grace to, his, to the Jewish people. Now, when this holiday occurred, it completely transformed Jerusalem. On the lower end of estimates, some would say that roughly 200,000 extra people would come from around the world to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. On the higher end of these estimates, you have a few million people coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. So that just numerically completely transforms the city. You know, two million, you thought, you know, the garlic festival transformed your town. Like two million? Are you kidding me? Additionally, it changed the city tonally. Passover is freedom time. It's the time where you take out the bad guys, where there's deliverance by the mighty hand of God. So there's this sort of spirit in the air, a spirit of freedom and and revival. Climactic things can occur. And so you have to think about this. I mean, if, if you're a, a normal person there, you're going, man, there's this Passover that we're celebrating. 
Sure, it would be nice to have another Passover. I don't like this Caesar, don't like Rome, don't like Herod. It would be great for another Passover to occur. And then you sort of connect the dots and maybe you say, yeah, there's this, this Jesus guy who's coming to town, who's done miracles. He's a miracle worker. Some say he's the son of David. Well, if he's the son of David, he's the king. And if he's the king, he should start this Passover right. We have at least a standing army of a few thousand, hundred thousand extra people. We easily outnumber, this is like the only time of the year we easily outnumber the Romans. We can drive out the enemies and do this Passover thing right. So there's an anticipation. It's like dynamite, you know, just one, one match can set the thing off. So when is it? It's Passover time. Freedom is in the air and you're remembering God's mighty deliverance of the Jewish people. Now, a where question. Where are we? It begins by saying, now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives. And then it goes on with Jesus giving instruction to his two disciples. Now, when we read that, it's just some extra geographical details. They're going to Jerusalem, Bethphage, yeah, the Mount of Olives. But these locations are dealing with an image, a very important image that's left kind of unresolved in the Old Testament. And it comes to us from the book of the prophet Ezekiel. And a little bit of historical context is needed to understand the book of Ezekiel. In 586 BC, the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. So hundreds of years before time of Jesus, the temple that Solomon built is destroyed. It's destroyed by the Babylonians. In addition to destroying the temple and destroying Jerusalem, they take majority of the survivors into captivity, into exile in Babylon. For the Jewish mind, this is the worst possible nightmare. Not only have you de been defeated in a, in, a, in, the, in a militaristic sense, which is horrific in the ancient world, but your temple, the temple of your God was destroyed. In the ancient Near Eastern mind, this is, this is the equivalent to your God being defeated by the other guy's gods. And so in the midst of this hopelessness and destruction and exile, God gives prophetic words to the prophet Ezekiel. And Ezekiel speaks of a coming day of hope. And he says, what well, the Lord says through the prophet, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Ezekiel says, even though it appears like God has either been defeated or abandoned his people, he is not defeated, he has not abandoned us, there will come a day when he will renew us. And he goes on. But as for those whose heart goes after the detestable things and their abomination, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord. In other words, there's a path for renewal, but for those who continue on in wickedness, there will be judgment. And then this, this is the important part. It's a, it's a bizarre image. Verse 22. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. Now you have to sort of be familiar with the book of Ezekiel. When Ezekiel starts talking about wills and, and angels and cherubim and the temple, he's talking about inside the temple where God's presence dwells. So God is everywhere. There's no place that God is not. That's the, 
the word omnipresent. He's omni all present. However, in the temple in Jerusalem, in the Holy of Holies, he chose to uniquely manifest his presence and his spirit. It's like a unique manifestation of the glory of God. Once the temple is destroyed, the question is, well, where'd, where'd that glory go? Where did that presence go? And Ezekiel has this vision given to him by God in which he sees the glory rising from the destroyed temple and going to the east and resting and residing on the mountain directly east of Jerusalem. It's a powerful image. It's like, there's a question though. It's like, well, what? Where's that? What's the mountain east of Jerusalem? It's a little difficult to see, but this is an overhead shot. And on the left, you have the Temple Mount. And then to the right, you see the Mount of Olives. Directly east of Jerusalem, you run into the first mountain, and that's the Mount of Olives. Uh, here's another picture, kind of a reconstruction of first century world in the top you see the kind of big platform elevated structure, that's the Temple Mount. And then to the left of it, you see the rest of the city of Jerusalem. To the right of the Temple Mount is just bright, dry kind of brown landscape that doesn't, actually doesn't even have any landscaping. Uh, that's the Kidron Valley. And to the right, you see trees. That's the Mount of Olives. There's an overhead shot from today. Uh, in the center is the Temple Mount the thing in the center of the center is the dome of the rock. That's not the temple. And if you have careful eyes, you could see the remaining western wall. And then at the bottom of the image, you see green and trees. That's the Mount of Olives. So the image is the presence of Yahweh, the, the God of Israel, rises after the destruction of the temple and then resides on the mountain east of Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives. And there's this anticipation, like, for the glory of God returning to Mount Zion, returning to Jerusalem. Now, what's the path that Jesus takes to walk into Jerusalem at the climactic moment? He goes to Jerusalem, he goes to Bethphage, and then he goes to the Mount of Olives. He's entering from the place that the image tells us the Spirit of God is residing, residing and then he says, stop, go get a donkey. We'll talk more about the donkey in a moment. But you have some, some wind questions some where questions, here's a what question. What are the people saying? What are they thinking as Jesus enters into Jerusalem? It says this, and the crowds that went before him and that were following him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now they're identifying Jesus as the son of David. So remember part one, a broken line, they're saying the line isn't broken. There is a rightful heir. This is the son of David. Now think about the context. Again, remember, it's Passover time. It's freedom time. It's times of plagues and punishment upon the tyrant, upon the bad guy, upon the enemy of God's people. And guess what? There is a true son of David here and we're standing with a couple hundred thousand dudes. We have an army in this place right now that would not normally be here. There's more going on. When they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that's just not a random phrase. This is a direct quote from the Psalm, Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a Hallel Psalm, and these are specific Psalms that were sung during Passover time. So again, the, the theme of Passover is like, it's building and it's, it's being layered and deepening with every kind of clue you follow. 
And verse 26 says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is what they are singing and declaring over Jesus as he enters in the city. Something else though, verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. This phrase, save us, we pray, or save us, we plead, or or like save us, we cry out, in Hebrew is hosh shi'ana, hosh shi'ana. Now kind of rush those syllables together. Hoshiana, Hoshiana. Do you hear it? Hoshiana, Hosanna. The crowds are saying Hosanna in the highest. They're using this word that's directly associated with Psalm 118. Now, Hoshiana or Hosanna is similar to the word hallelujah. Hallelujah is two Hebrew words. There's the hallelu part, which is praise in Hebrew, and then the yah at the end of hallelujah is the shortened form of the Hebrew personal covenantal name of God, Yahweh. So hallelujah means praise Yahweh, praise God. Similarly, Hosanna is doing something in parallel. Rather than hallelujah, you're getting a hoshiana, Hosanna, save us. Save us, we pray. Save us, we cry out. And in Psalm 118, the Hallel Psalm that's sung during Passover, the people are crying out, save us, Hosanna, O Lord, O Yahweh, save us. And now as Jesus is entering into the holy city, you hear Psalm 118 and you hear the people, Hosanna in the highest, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the true son of David. Deliver us, bring us salvation. Now you can think about the type of salvation they were thinking about. They were probably thinking about salvation similar to the Exodus story. You would be too. I mean, it's very easy to. If you, if you have your enemies mistreating your people and your family and a son of David is there, you want freedom from that. Another question, a how question. And this one's a little bit more weird. Um, this has to do with how the books of the Old Testament were ordered. Um, in our Bibles, in our Old Testament, you have all the exact same books that were in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures in Jesus' day. So there's no question about that. The issue is, sometimes the books were ordered in a different manner. So if you were to open up your Bible and go to the last book of the Old Testament and go to the last verse and chapter of the Old Testament, you would run into Malachi, chapter four, verses five through six. And it would say, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, that's a great ending to the Old Testament and it bridges you, and if you think about the narrative structure, it bridges you to the New Testament perfectly because the New Testament begins with John the Baptist, who is the Elijah to come, preparing the way for Jesus. So it's like, yeah, this is a great, that's a great ending to the Old Testament, bridges perfect. In the time of Jesus, there were some other orderings, though, of how you put these things together. In the Hebrew scriptures, uh, the Jewish people would split our Old Testament, the the Hebrew scriptures, into three major sections. The Torah, which is often called the law, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then there would be the Nevi'im, which is the prophets, and then there'd be the Ketuvim, which is the writings. So you have the law, the prophets, and the writings, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. 
And in some of the orderings, the Ketuvim, the writing, appears last. And the last book of the Ketuvim, the writings, is the book of Second Chronicles. Well, it's a little bit more difficult because there's just, First and Second Chronicles is one book but on two scrolls because you can't write First and Second Chronicles on one scroll because they didn't make them that big. It's a little complicated, but the last thing you would read is Second Chronicles. This is how you would read the ending of the story with that ordering. Here is the, the climactic conclusion that started off in the garden with Adam and Eve and it's been going on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and this is how it ends. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. There you have it. That's the ending. Now, for those of you who are very familiar with your Bible, the Old Testament is like this big and the New Testament is like this big. It's, you know, Old Testament, much bigger, much longer. Very long story. And the climactic ending is, hey, I'm Cyrus. All the kingdoms are mine. You can go back up to Jerusalem and build the Lord's house. Let him go up. I'm like, what? What is going on? Okay, some context. Remember how we mentioned the temple was destroyed in 586? Surviving Jews are brought over into exile. Well, eventually, the Babylonians fall and the Persians become the guys in charge and King Cyrus is kind of the ruler of the biggest empire of the day. And King Cyrus looks upon the Jewish people and says, whoever of you wants to go back to Jerusalem, go back and rebuild the house of God, rebuild the temple. You go do it, and then it says, let him go up. And it's this weird phrase to us, let, let him go up. But there's some things you have to understand is, when he says let him go up, he's talking about going up to Jerusalem. And there's two reasons for that. Jerusalem, you always go up to Jerusalem. Always. You always have to go up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the highest place theologically, and it's also, quite literally, a mountain, Mount Zion. You have to go up to it. So theologically, Jerusalem is the highest point because this is the place where the temple is, where God reveals his unique kind of glory. So theologically, there is no taller mountain than Jerusalem. It's the highest of highs. But also then, kind of physically and literally, you always have to travel up. There's no other way to, it's Mount Zion, it's a mountain, you have to go up there. So, the Old Testament ends with an expectation. Let him go up. Someone needs to go up and reestablish the house of God. Now in the historical context, Cyrus is encouraging some of the, the Jewish people to you guys go up and build it. But it's this weird ending, this lingering, let him go up to reestablish the house of God. Now, where did Jesus enter Jerusalem from? We just talked about it. From the east, Mount Olives, and he comes in. And there's an image with that, the glory of the Lord returning. But you have to ask a a further question. Where was Jesus directly before he went to the Mount of Olives? What was the path that he took from the east up to Jerusalem? And the answer to that is revealed in the few verses right before chapter 21 begins, the ending of chapter 20. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. 
And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. So these these two blind individuals declared Jesus to be the son of David, which is fascinating because... um, those who can't physically see are declaring this like ultimate spiritual truth. And they're doing it preemptively before Jesus enters into the holy city. But on top of that, if you read on, Jesus heals them, which is incredibly important because the healing of the blind is a miracle directly associated with the age to come when the Messiah was ruling and reigning and evil was eradicated. When you look at the Old Testament, you're gonna see all kinds of miracles. Tons of miracles, parting of this, the sea, you know, huge, the plagues, all this, this sort of miraculous supernatural stuff, but you don't see the blind receiving their sight. The restoration of sight to blind eyes is a miracle reserved for the age to come with the Messiah. Right before Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he's, he's healing the blind, and they're saying this is the son of David. Now where is this occurring? In Jericho. Now remember, the image, the leftover narrative kind of plot hole in the Old Testament, Second Chronicles, is someone going up to restore the temple. So you're looking for someone to go up. And in one sense, you could say, oh, Isaac, you just said you always have to go up to Jerusalem. It's on a mountain. So anyone, anyone going to Jerusalem is doing that. They're going up. Okay. But when Jesus goes up, it's different because this is the son of David and the blind are declaring it and he's doing the the signs of the Messiah in the messianic age and the age to come. Additionally, to make this point extra crystal clear, Jesus goes from Jericho to the eastern mountain to Jerusalem. Jesus could not have chosen a more perfect place to go up from. And not a more perfect place in all of Israel or all of the Roman Empire. I mean on planet Earth. Jericho is the lowest city on earth in human history. The Dead Sea is technically lower, but it's water. You're not gonna build a city there. Jericho is the lowest inhabited city on earth in history. There is no other lower point. It's 850 feet below sea level. And then Jerusalem is roughly 2,500 feet above. So from the lowest place on earth, the sun of of David begins his ascent to the holy city. From the lowest place on earth, the son of man begins his ascent to his father's house. There's a why question, and we hinted at this earlier. Why does Jesus, right before he's about to go in, after all of these things are taking place, says, oh, we gotta stop. Go, disciples, um, go find me this donkey. Just go, just go ask this guy over here and tell him the Lord needs it. Trust me, it'll work. Just bring the donkey back. Like, what's up with that? Well, again, the answer is found in the Old Testament. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, in the Old Testament, in the Prophet Zechariah's words, the coming king, the coming Messiah is going to enter in riding on a donkey. So in one sense, 
there is a fulfillment of this prophecy taking place, which is absolutely true, but there, there's additional layers to this because there's a reason why Zechariah prophesies that the coming king will come in on a donkey because it's the history of Israel that kings often come into cities in a royal manner sitting on donkeys. And so in the Old Testament, there's several weird stories with kings of Israel and donkeys and coming into cities after, after victories. One with David, one with Saul, and there's this weird tragic story with Absalom. But there's this association between the kings and riding in on donkeys. So Zechariah picks that theme up and says, this is gonna happen again in the future. But there's even another layer. To get to the, to the bottom of the well, you have to go even, even deeper. The, the association between kings and donkeys goes way, way back. Like to the first book of the Bible way back. You go back to Genesis 49 and you see this theme established. The scene in Genesis 49 is this. Jacob is about to die and he's going to pray over and bless his 12 sons. And his 12 sons also will give rise to the 12 tribes of Israel. So they are literary, literally sons, but they also symbolically function as the representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now Jacob's father was Isaac and Isaac's father was Abraham. And so Abraham is the founder of the Jewish people. God chooses him, calls him out, and through Abraham's descendants are the covenants in the Hebrew scriptures made. Abraham begets Isaac and Isaac begets Jacob. Jacob then begets these 12 sons who will be the 12 tribes of Israel. What I'd like to do is focus on the words that Jacob says over his son Judah. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, Judah and his descendants, that tribal line is the tribal line that David and Jesus belongs to, belong to. Jacob, upon his death, at his deathbed, says this over Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Interesting thing to say to your son on your deathbed, right? But a couple important things. One, Judah is a royal line. Verse 10, the first line, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter shall not depart. Second important note, the second line of verse 11, there's this image of the donkey's colt, these, these beasts of burden being associated with the royal line. The third important note, right after that, and he has washed his garments in wine. Now, now you're supposed to, to picture this in your head. Picture garments being soaked in wine and pulled out. What is the image? This is blood. The garments are being soaked in blood. And if, if it wasn't crystal clear from the image, what's the line immediately after that? And his vestures in the blood of grapes. So there is this kingly line in whom the scepter shall not depart. It's associated with this donkey and then there's this association with garments that are soaked in blood. Now, important note, this, you can read this and many people have and do as meaning Judah's line is a warrior line. It's not, it's, it's the blood, yes, his garments are soaked in blood but the, his garments are soaked in the blood of his enemies. He's a man of war. 
So there's different ways to look at the image. Nevertheless, the important thing you have in your mind is garments soaked in wine, this image of blood and the donkey and the scepter shall not pass. Now, you start to bring all these little threads together and try to put them together and what do you get? When are we? It's Passover time. It's deliverance time. This is where God brings punishment and plagues to the evil guys and delivers his people. There is a possible standing army in Jerusalem that would normally not be there. Where are we? We are coming from the east, the place the glory of God resided until it would return to the holy mountain. What are the people saying? They're saying Hallel Psalms, Passover Psalms, pleading for salvation. Hosanna in the highest, save us, son of David. How is Jesus doing this? He's fulfilling the narrative arc that's left from 2 Chronicles. He is the one going up from the furthest place you can go at the lowest elevation on earth to the Temple Mount at 2,500 feet above sea level. And why is he coming in on a donkey? Because kings come in on the donkeys. And this is established in Zechariah and it's established in the life of David and Saul. Most importantly, it's established in the words of the patriarch Jacob as he blesses his son Judah. So you put those pieces together. The time is right. The army is gathered. The king is coming on his donkey. He is the son of David. The glory of the Lord is returning from the east. This is the one in whom the scepter shall not depart. Which goes back to our original question, Matthew 21, 10. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Who is this? This is the return of the God of Israel, Yahweh, in the person of the Son. He is bringing the glory and presence of God back to the temple, back to Mount Zion, because he precisely is the true temple. He is God in flesh, incarnate deity. He is the God-man. He is the living, walking, breathing temple, the return of Yahweh to his temple and his people. This is who this Jesus is. Now, what's going to happen? Because in one sense, like the, the, the anticipation is, is through the roof. And also the tension is through the roof. It's Passover time. It's freedom time. What's about to go down? And if you're familiar with the story at this point, you, you, you know that like things go tragically wrong. Tragically wrong. And in a short week, within a week, the people who were crying out, son of David, Hoshiana, you're the one, they go from wanting to crown him to saying crucify him. In a week, in a week. It's like, how, how could this possibly happen? How could this story go so, so wrong? This isn't how it's supposed to happen. See, Jesus w- was not meeting the expectations of the people. It's really easy to be team Jesus when he's handing out miracles and multiplying food so that everyone's belly feel good. It's really easy to follow him when he's dispensing miracle after miracle. But when he starts speaking of carrying a cross and he starts speaking about, I go to Jerusalem to die, to be handed over and betrayed, to be mocked and humiliated. I go to a cross. Then all of a sudden, it's really easy for the tides of popular opinion to to turn. And so we see the people, son of David, Hosanna, crown him, 
and then we see a complete abandonment. It's as if the whole world turns on Jesus. It's not just some of the people there. Like, the whole world symbolically is turning on Jesus. There's Jews there. There's Romans there. There's a, a, there's a uniting of Jew and Gentile in the crucifixion of Jesus. The Romans working in collaboration with the religious elite of the day. You have the abandonment of the masses. You have the abandonment, it goes deeper, the abandonment of the disciples. The majority of the disciples turn their back on Jesus. They're nowhere to be found. When Jesus is crucified, there are very few people that are there. Very few. Very few people are there. The majority of people turn their back on him. You can say, in one sense, how could it go so poorly but you got to understand that it's not as if this story took a tragic turn that wasn't foreseen or planned remember the Hallel Psalm Psalm 118 the one that had Hoshiana the one that had blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord embedded in that psalm embedded in that psalm of praise is this mysterious verse that speaks and foretells of the rejection of the Messiah Verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In the middle of this song of praise, hidden is the rejection of the Messiah. And it's because Jesus came and he didn't turn out to be the Messiah that everyone wanted him to be. Jesus was not the Christ, the Messiah, the deliverer that the people wanted. Remember, it's Passover time. It's Passover time. And we're tired of the corruption and the abuse from our overlords. And it's easy to maybe mock that. No, 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 wait a second. If there are people in charge who are evil and corrupt and they mistreat your people and your family and there's a deliverer, there's a Messiah, there's a son of David, you want him to deliver you from that. But Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, doesn't turn out to be what they wanted or what they thought they wanted or what they were expecting and this is something that it's it it's really easy to look back at this story and look at these people and say what was wrong with you are you kidding me in seven days you went from crowning him to saying crucify in seven days you would you would want to follow him to to abandoning him to the disciples He's been with you for a few years and you're just gonna take off at at this moment? But you gotta understand the weight of feeling as if God is not the person you wanted him to be. Now, this is something that some of you have wrestled with. Maybe some of you are wrestling with it right now or maybe it's in the future you'll wrestle with it. Sometimes in life, you get hit with stuff and it appears as if God is not the person you wanted him to be. You know, this, this, this world is broken, man. There is hurt and pain and suffering immeasurable. And you go, I thought, God, you were like this. I thought you were good. I thought you were for me and not against me. But then this happened or that happened and you're not who I wanted you to be. You're not it. Maybe you prayed for something. You prayed again and again and again for a deliverance, for like a mini Passover in your life. You prayed again and and God did not seem to care. 
And it becomes really easy in those moments to abandon your faith. It's really easy when God's not meeting your expectations, you know, to be like, this isn't what I want. It's not what I want. Or maybe you just look out at the world and you see injustice and you see things that are unfair and you're going, this isn't the God, this isn't what I wanted. This isn't what, the, this isn't the God I thought you were. You know, or maybe it's because you were, you were led to Jesus with a version of the gospel that said something like, God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life and if you accept him, he can take care of all your problems and your life's gonna be great. It's gonna be fantastic. And then you did that and then you realize within the next couple weeks, you lost your job, you had relational problems, your pet died and one thing after another and it's like, things are, things are harder. And it comes real easy real easy in those moments. This, this isn't what I thought you were. This is who I want you to be. There's a thousand ways you can go from lifting your hands in worship to turning your back to him. There's a thousand paths for that. Here's maybe one of the ones that's most relevant for the church today. You sign up for Christianity. You want to follow Jesus. You read the Bible. You see what the king says, what the king demands of his people, you see his moral and ethical law stated clearly and you're on board with it but then all of a sudden kind of biblical ethics and morality are not in vogue like they used to be and now there's cultural pressure and cultural disdain for anyone who might want to follow these commands. It becomes real easy when the tides of popular opinion turn and put pressure on you to turn to just be like, yeah, I'm not really on board with all of this stuff. It's really easy. The people at this time were probably wanting a lot of things, a lot of things. But I could totally relate if they just wanted a new Passover, bring the plagues and punishment and take out the bad guys. It's Passover time, it's freedom time. But here is the thing. Jesus came precisely at Passover time. The when question is an important question. This is a new Passover, but in this Passover, Jesus is not going to bring plagues and punishment upon his enemies. Jesus himself will be our Passover lamb because he came not to destroy his enemies, but to die for them. He himself is our Passover lamb. And because of that, you could say, thank God you don't always Give me what I want or be the God I wanted you to be. But in Jesus, we see the God we actually needed. And if you've been a Christian a long time, you've had these moments where you've looked back at your life and you go, you know, I prayed and prayed for this, but thank God you didn't give me what I wanted. Thank you, Jesus, you didn't give me what I wanted. You have those because Jesus is not the God you always want him to be, but he is the God you need him to be. Because sometimes the things you want aren't what you need. And moreover than that, sometimes you want something good and true and right and it still doesn't happen. And what you have to remember is the mission of Christ. Why did he come? Because sometimes pain and suffering, they'll make you drift from faithfulness. And I'm, not, I, I'm, for, I'm in no way belittling pain and suffering that people have gone through, have experienced, or that's in this world. But I am saying a different truth that is written everywhere in the scriptures, that if you are in Christ, 
Whatever trial or tribulation or loss experienced, whatever suffering, whatever pain, however bad you think that is and however long you think you have to endure it, that is but a blip to the eternity that Christ has promised you. I know in the moment, in time, it feels like it's taking forever, but whatever loss, whatever suffering, when it's all said and done, it is but a blip to the eternity that Christ has promised you. He himself is your Passover lamb. He laid down his life to give you his eternity and to share his home with you. You will spend eternity with God where there will be no more suffering and nor pain or pain. And when you fix your eyes on those promises, it doesn't take away pain and suffering in this world, but it helps you endure it because you have to remember all the promises of God. Yes, there is glory, but Christ also promises you this. In this world, you will have trouble. Take courage, take heart, I have overcome the world. So the believer endures present suffering because the sacrifice of the Passover lamb has purchased eternity and has purchased a people and has purchased everyone who is in Christ. So you endure even when it doesn't seem to be going right in the good times and the bad times. Now that's Psalm 118 that talked about the stone being rejected. You have to know that embedded in this praise psalm is the rejection of the Messiah, but also the resurrection and also the good ending and also the fact that this is all going according to plan. The stone that the builders rejected, that's what we focused on a second ago, has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's been the plan all along. He is the lamb slain before the foundations of the world. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Every day is the day that the Lord has made and you should rejoice and be glad in it. But specifically, the day that the Lord made was the day the court the stone was rejected and he in turn made it the chief cornerstone. That is the day that the Lord made. It was his plan, his purpose for Jesus to be our Passover lamb. He comes not to destroy his enemies. Thank God he comes to die for him. And enemies are made into family. That's the household of God. Now, last thing here. Uh, this Psalm 118 is, is, is pretty remarkable because you have all this stuff going on but there's also these bookends to it. The way it begins is the exact same way it ends. And in it is a theme that is crucial for the believer's life. This is absolutely crucial. Because in this world, you will have troubles. You will have heartache. There'll be immense suffering. There will be loss. But you have to remember, in the midst of all of that, God is still good. Not because your present circumstances are good, but because the ultimate promises of God he has given you eternity. He will share heaven with you. Death will not have the final word. The cross doesn't speak the final word. The resurrection speaks the final word. And it says that through the cross, death came to one man so that life may be given to all. So in good times or bad times, in dark times, in bright times, you remember the bookends of Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. And then the ending of the psalm. 
You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. With the temple destroyed, with his people going into exile, all seeming loss, God was sovereignly working in human history to come in the person of the son to bring about restoration and forgiveness, not only for the Jewish people, but for the Gentile world, so that there would be one family composed, neither Jew nor Gentile, people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And we keep our eyes focused on eternity, and that will help you be faithful in your present circumstances. Let's stand as we take communion.